I felt a few months ago praying about this, this month to do a series called Influence and Redeemer. And the thought has been that Jesus didn't come to make your life better. He came to transform you. The whole goal of Christianity is transformation. It's not information. It's transformation. It's not just you being a better person and Jesus answering all your prayers and giving you houses and cars and lands. It's that your life is completely different. One thing you have to begin to think about Christianity is that it's not you having a belief system trying to live better morals. The whole goal of Christianity is you're completely different. It's why Jesus will use the phrase, you've been born again. In other words, sin is so raunchy to God that God said, I'm not even going to try to make you better. I'm just going to put you to death and resurrect you brand new people. But what we have a lot in American Christianity is people that just see Jesus as like a social media influencer, a mentor, a life coach. They have him in their hip pocket for a rainy day. They know the scriptures to quote, the religion to do it. But the, the question has become, is their life really altogether different? Because we would say, if, if, we, if we're honest with what we say we believe, we should see drastic fruit in our life. And the question becomes, if there's no fruit, well, then why? Why am I not seeing the fruit of a life change with Jesus Christ? Many of you may know, and I'm sure you know, my mother and dad. Mother's testimony of my dad, this is before my brother and I were on planet Earth. My dad was raised a very poor man on, in a farm. His father was an alcoholic. And my dad, as a young man, would have to go and get his dad out of the ditch because he would lose jobs, could not keep jobs, would pass out. And my dad would have to go get him and bring him home as an embarrassment. My dad's testimony is how embarrassing it was as a kid to have to go get your dad out of a ditch because he was drunk. And grew up very, very, very poor. I asked dad one time, I said, what did you get for Christmas typically? He said, well, typically Christmas we got an orange and then maybe another piece of fruit. And I said, come on, Dad, really? And that's how poor they were. And my dad left that farm and joined the Navy, and in the Navy ended up going to the University of Alabama where he meets my mother, who's a handful in itself, Jesus. Mm. But my mother's testimony of my dad is that he came home one night because my dad would like to come home during the college years and sit down, have a sip of vodka, and just, he was a young man in college. But she said she never forgot the moment he came home one night, he opened the refrigerator, he opened the vodka, he poured it down the sink because he had been born again. And she said, her testimony now, she said, from that day I saw your father do that he was a completely different man. And I only have that as a testimony of him because by the time I was born, he was living a life that Jesus Christ was his redeemer. I often am marvel at how I was raised by my parents, but I could say it was very religious if I told you everything they did, but looking back, I don't think it was religion to them because my dad understood who Jesus was to him. And so I make jokes that my dad would pray over the car to start. He would pray for the toilet to flush. He would pray for the broken dishwasher. He would pray for the sick dog. He would have scriptures written on his 
bathroom window that says, in the blood of Jesus Christ, I am. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I am healed. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I live a free life. And I would hear him quoting that every morning. But what it did for me as a young man is it, it did something very distinct because I grew up with an understanding that God and Jesus were real people that were part of your everyday life, not just a Sunday experience. And my dad gave me that opportunity because Jesus to him was as if Jesus lived in our home with us. So much so that when we would be watching TV, if something came across the TV, he, he would turn it off and he would say, I'm not letting that in my house. And I think, well, why? He said, because I don't want it to be offensive to the Holy Spirit. Now, I can think that's kind of highly religious, right? Like, like is that really bother? But what I was learning now that I'm older, I'm learning that, that my dad had such a in-tune thought process that God lived in him dwelled with him, talked with him, slept with him, worked with him. That it was very hard for me now to see God as some faraway entity and not part of my everyday life. But yet, in our generation, Jesus is more of just an influencer. I fit him in if I have time. I, I read my Bible and do a devotion, but I'm talking, and I don't know how you could statistically know, but just thinking it through from what I've experienced, I just often wonder if the Jesus we present to people is the one that we should present because of true life change. Because I often don't see real life change. I see people struggling, trying, but true life change. And that's kind of what led into... Is there a possibility to go from here to here, from influencer to redeemer? What does it take? And then this scripture, we've held on to it every single time. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what I've been trying to present to us over the last three weeks is is that there's a distinct difference between the influence of the story, the child being born, the Christmas, the manger, the baby, and then a, a, a very distinct line from the stories to the government. And what I've been trying to present to us is that it's always been about His government. Everything God is doing is to establish a kingdom. In this thing we call church this morning, I know it's religious things we do here in America, but in this gathering called church, God is trying to establish His kingdom. We are His representatives. We are His ambassadors. We take the story to the people that we work with in our 50 feet. And this word government brings it much more into lordship, not just what you know, but, but what seat He holds in your life. What what influence? Does he just influence you emotionally or does he really govern your soul? Do, do we come to the place of what Jesus said? Even Jesus, who is the Son of God, will make the comment about the power of the government of God because he says, I can't do whatever I want to do. I can only do what I've heard my Father say. So even Jesus, who's the Son of God in the flesh, lets us know that I'm not down here just living me. 
I'm down here presenting the government of God to the world. And, and then in that, we have what's called Christianity. But what I want to talk about, rather than dwelling a third week on the government, I want to come back to this phrase, unto us a child is born, and I want to talk to you about the story of this woman called Mary and, and what we can learn about God's government from the story. Now here's the, the theology behind it, the history. Mary, uh, it's a strange thought, but theologians and historians say that Mary, when the angel Gabriel appeared to her, was between age 12 and 16. So there's no way to know the exact age, but they say based on the history of that time period, most girls were betrothed by age 12 to age 16. They were betrothed to a man to marry. So for all of you that have 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughters, could you imagine what it's going to be like when an angel shows up and has this in-depth conversation with her? We're not talking about a 25-year-old woman with a college education here. We're talking about a young girl who's probably just entered into the time of life she could get pregnant. And this angel shows up and interrupts her life. I kind of think through it because I raised four daughters. I kind of put myself in that picture and think, what would I think if my daughter came home and said, Dad, I'm pregnant? And I said, oh, okay, and who's the father? And she said, God. I would put her in a mental hospital. I would be like, honey, I don't know what you're smoking, but God did not get you pregnant. You've slept with somebody. I want to know the guy because I'm going to kill him. I mean, let's just be honest. Most fathers are probably thinking that way. Most fathers are probably not thinking, hey, guess what? I just want to give a praise report. My daughter got pregnant by God. That's not going to go well. Most people on the block are going to think you're strange people. Just so you understand the power of what's going on, by the time Jesus is born and he's raised and he's an adult and he's doing ministry, his own brothers, his half-brothers, literally thought he was a lunatic. So it's not as romantic as we make it. We make the story of Jesus romantic. We make the Christmas story very romantic. There is, you have to start here, there's nothing romantic about it at all. We, we've, you know, kind of, we've put our spin on it in, in the way we decorate Christmas trees and put little manger scenes. I guarantee you the manger scene on your fireplace is nothing like the reality. It stank, there was camel poo, there's hay, there's flies, there's bugs, there's dirt, there's no air conditioning. And I'm sure a nine-month pregnant woman who took a journey for five days on the back of a woman to be shoved in a hole in the wall because her husband forgot to make reservations <laughs> is probably not feeling like this is the best time of my life. The Bible says that to go from, from Nazareth, Galilee, to Bethlehem to have the baby was about a 90-mile journey. But it's not a 90-mile journey in a Tesla. It's a 90-mile journey on the back of a camel, and the average distance you could go would take you about four days. So we have a nine-month pregnant teenager on a four-day journey 
to go somewhere that she's going to end up having a baby. So unromanticize it for a moment and let's think through it. In the sixth month, Luke 1, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's her aunt, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, and here's the romantic part. He's a descendant of King David. The sister is marrying into royalty. For a young girl in that day, this is a big deal. To help you understand a little better, in our terms, she's going to marry Justin Bieber. <laughs> she's high-end woman. A descendant of the king that everybody talks about. She's in the royal line of the king. And I'm certain knowing raising girls that her energy level is just at an all-time high. She's looking through the catalogs of the day, prepping her wedding outfit. She's talking with her friends about the big day. She's talking to her friends about the love of her life, Joseph. And everybody's like, Joseph, oh, he's a descendant of King David. How'd you hook up with him? I don't know. God's good. She's planning a wedding. She's planning a honeymoon. She's got a life. It's laid out in front of her, and in an instant, everything is ruined. Because to really think about it, we think the romance of it, but can you imagine when every plan you've had is suddenly diverted and your hopes and dreams don't come true? You're a virgin and you're engaged and you're a descendant of King David, but what the angel is going to tell her is you're going to be pregnant with the Son of God. And when he tells her that, this is what she says, I don't even know, how is this possible? I'm a virgin, so let's pull it a little tighter here. She's probably, it's not like girls today in our culture, sex is just so free that, you know, by the time you're in junior high, high school, you've had your first sexual experience statistically. She's obviously saved herself. She saved herself maybe for many reasons because she wants to give it to her husband, the love of her life, one reason. Second reason, she lives in a culture where if she loses her virginity before she's married, they'll kill her. So for her to sleep with somebody before she's married is a big deal because if they find out, they'll take her outside the town and they will stone her and kill her for having sex before she's married. That's the culture she lives in. So when she says, well, I'm a virgin, pull it into some of the things going. I've held myself pure. I've lived a great life. I, I have intentions for my life. I don't understand. You're, you're telling me I'm going to have to sleep with a man and lose my virginity with somebody I, I don't even know. Help me understand this. So it already, just the very question starts in her mind, like this messes with everything I know. This doesn't fit my life box, my, the things I wanted to do with my life. God steps into her life with an angel and on the surface it just messes everything up. Because now the wedding's got to be postponed. The dress won't fit. I could potentially be drug outside of town and stoned. And then what am I going to tell my husband? He's never going to believe me. We'll talk about him next week. This is what they say about her husband in the moment. 
Matthew 1 picks the story of Joseph. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man. So he, she's not marrying a loser here. This, this guy isn't out here just running the women. She's got her a good man. And he's so good, he says, I don't want to disgrace her publicly, so I think what I'm going to do is just break it off. So now the love of her life, because God showed up, it's ruined her life. It's ruined the dreams of her life. It's ruined her journaling and everything she thought for herself. God showed up and it's just turned the whole corner and it seems so unfair. Why me? Why ruin my marriage? Why, why potentially get me killed? Why, why could I, I could lose my husband here? And just to show you how serious he was about it, it took an angel to show up and tell him, don't do this. So this wasn't a Friday night he got ticked off. He literally is going to end it all. So much so that an angel shows up and says, no, you're not doing that today. We don't know much about him, but I'll do my best next week to talk to you about him. So my question is this. How do you make it through hard times when there seems to be little fruit to your faith? Because my faith is going to ruin everything I've had planned for me. I want God to give me a great man, a great husband, keep my virginity, good honeymoon, good house, and a good kid. That's what I want out of God. And then God comes and said, yeah, but what I want out of you. It's going to challenge you, Mark. What I ask you to do, at first it's going to feel like that you're in a place to where everything you wanted out of your life, you're getting ripped off. I can understand that. From a superficial initial reaction, it feels like Mary is just getting the cheap end of the stick here. But there's a plan. How many of you know there's a bigger plan than just your emotions? There's a bigger plan for you than just what you've planned for yourself. If I could do one thing today, it would be to take you out of that God is here to make your plan work and to move you into will you work His plan. And when you say yes to that, it sometimes can touch dreams and things you wish you could, should, would do. And God asks something big of you. And God asks, would you let this go? Would you let that dream go so I could do this in you? Would you let this thinking go so I could do that in you? Would you let these expectations of your life go so I could do this in you? And I find that that thinking in many Christians today is a foreign concept. What can I let go of so that I can be everything God wants me to be? How can I die to the things I want? Because the Jesus we market is one that gives you everything you want. Not the Jesus that steps in and says, look, I'm going to mess everything up here. Everything you thought you would do with your life, I'm going to mess it up. But when I'm done with you, oh, come on, somebody. When he's done with you, there's not one regret you will ever have. It, your life will be so much better. If you will just come to the place and say, Lord, do with me whatever you want to do with me, your life will be so much better than anything the world could give you and anything you could dream up yourself. But many people never get there because it's too hard to let go. It's too hard to give up me, my dreams, and what I want. It's too difficult. 
It's too hard to say, God, what do you want out of me? And he says, leave everything and go to Tulsa. God, what do you want out of me? Leave your job and go start a church. God, what do you want out of me? And at every place Robin and I ever said, God, what do you want out of me? It took a deep, deep breath and a, do we believe that what he wants for us is greater than what we want for ourselves? And so that's been letting go of cars, letting go of houses, letting go of friends, letting go of everything we dream for ourselves, and just saying, Lord, we're here, whatever you want to do. But I'll tell you, at age 58, I look back at all of Mark's little plans for his life, and everywhere God stepped in and took hold of me, I have not one regret. And here's the strange thing. I don't have time to preach it today. But every place along the way, when I said yes to it, his miracles were in line. I saw supernatural things happen. Things that you couldn't even explain because I simply said yes to what do you want from me versus me trying to go, let me tell you what I want and I don't understand why he never does anything for me. Probably because you're in yourself and when you're in yourself, he's not obligated to give you miracles to promo yourself. His miracles promote his glory. And so I have to come to that place. I want to teach you today briefly how to get here how to get here so that when the hard time comes, you don't give up on your faith. I, uh, 30 years ago when I started preaching, I, I hated the word hard times. I rebuke it. In Jesus' name, I rebuke hard times. I do not confess hard times. And do you know no matter how much I said I don't confess hard times, the hard times still came. In this world, you shall have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. <laughs> now I'm like, I don't like hard times. They stink. But in the middle of them, honey, I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm not giving up on His glory and His faith. I'm not letting go of His, of his character. And because many people only know the influence, Jesus, when hard times come, you can't find them. They're pouty, whiny. They give up on Him. They think he's abandoned them. Let me tell you, I don't care how hellacious your life gets, he will never abandon you. Sometimes it gets so dark you can't see him, but he's always there. So in thinking this through, I thought, okay, how do I explain this? How do I explain it in a clear way? And I went back to the text we've started in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, and the, and the government. I go back to Isaiah the prophet to the very first verse. Instead of jumping in at 6, I jumped in at 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. And as soon as I read that this week, it leapt in my spirit that can you bring yourself to a place that the hell you're in right now won't go on forever? There's coming hope. He says the land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled and there will be, I love this, a time in the future when Galilee, there's Mary, of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. So can you imagine when the Gabriel steps in and says, hey... I got this idea where you're going to be uh, pregnant with God. I would imagine in a moment of time, it was a little dark despair. But what about me? What about my life? What about my wedding? What about my husband? Oh, well, don't worry, honey. Because in your future, 
you will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, my thinking is it's hard to go from despair, endure time, and focus on I'm filled with His glory. This distance between despair and glory is hell at times. Because in despair to glory, you'll bump into people who discourage you, who help you give up. You better be careful the friends you hang out with between despair and glory. Because your future won't be glory. Your future will be, I can't understand why this thing never changes. I'm like, well, sniff the people you hang out with. That sounded weird, didn't it? Look at the people you hang out with. Do you ever notice in the moment she got pregnant where she went? She went to Elizabeth's house. And when she walks into Elizabeth's house, she gives the Magnificat. Glory to God in the highest. You know, blessed be you whose fruit of your womb. She finds herself with a woman that believes so much that what God is going to do rather than despair, the great joy of the Lord was known. Now this journey is difficult. Many Christians don't do well in a dark, despairing time. Because it's the time in the future. How many of you know we're terrible at future thinking? I want my coffee now. I want my prayer answered now. And so it's very difficult for American thinking to be that how long does this last? Now what I would like to say is if I try to define how long despair can last, we get very discouraged. Well, I thought you said a month. Well, I thought you said, but I can tell you this. In the middle of despair, you can have great joy. For I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed when Mark just learns to focus on his glory rather than my problems. You have to train yourself to that. You have to train your mind to focus on I will be filled with his glory. And you can ask yourself how discouraging it is when you lose sight of glory and you only focus on the despair, despair that feels like it's just going to go on forever. And so I'd like to teach you how to make that gap a little shorter. It says in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now think this through a minute. When he says the people that walk in darkness and live in deep darkness, he's talking about the moment and the city within which Mary lives. So it's not like she lives in this super spiritual time. So look around at 2023 and go, my God, it's terrible. Okay, I give you that, but literally the prophet said when Mary lived, people walked in darkness and lived in deep darkness. Anybody feel like we're in that moment again? But in the middle of that, a light will shine. Now that light that's going to shine is going to require this young teenage girl to say yes. So what can make a teenage girl living in a culture of deep darkness that has all of her life in front of her at the fingertips say yes to this crazy plan? And just so you know uh, how it's going to go down, She's got to have nine months to make sure nobody kills her for being pregnant because if she's pregnant, 
Without a husband, they'll kill her. She's also got to determine how do I raise God when everybody thinks I'm crazy. And then the very fact that the God that told you you're going to raise God tells you also you're going to watch God die. So how tragic that the mother is going to have to know my kid will die before me. Nothing about the story seems fair. So I thought, well, how could I do this? So I, I, as I reasoned through it, I thought one thing we don't do well is define God in the middle of darkness. Darkness makes it hard to define anything. This, this picture is not even fair because darkness is dark. But have you ever tried to think that God is so big that He's not afraid of the darkness, He best defines Himself in the darkness? So I go back to where? Genesis, thank you. Very first book, very first verse. In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. However, verse 2, the earth was formless and darkness covered the deep. Do you see, before we ever even get started with any of these stories called Christianity, the whole thing starts with deep darkness everywhere. God is not afraid of darkness. But God knows the darkness can be so dark that you lose sight of His ability. And then it says this, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the surface of the waters. It tells me this, that there is an essence in the middle of darkness that you're going to have to learn to tap into the Spirit of God rather than your emotions. Because in the middle of darkness, when it feels formless and empty, when you've lost your marriage, when your, uh, your, your partner's going to you know, give up the engagement, when you're going to be pregnant, when you're going to lose your dreams, if you're not careful, you focus on the darkness. When you focus on the darkness, you will redefine God. And what you will do is you will redefine God going from darkness to God. And He will kind of take well, whatever you've deduced Him to be. But in the middle of the darkness, when you tap in, this is going to sound really religious, when you tap into the intimacy of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, even in the middle of darkness, will define who God is for you. And in the middle of darkness, you'll say, I don't care how dark it is, because I know Him. I know His voice. I know His sound. So before there's a human, before there's Mary, we have darkness and God and the Spirit in one verse about to do something. And in this, we learn, this is my thinking, my opinion, we learn how all of life works in these two verses. That darkness is always trying to hinder who God is and God is always trying to get the Spirit in the middle of your life to define who He is. Both are going to try to define Him. Darkness says it's formless and empty. God is not a creator. God is never there. The Spirit says, just hang on a minute. Because this sounds really preachy, but I like it. I feel like I'm going somewhere. I'm about to ramp it up. 
Because in the middle of darkness, when the Spirit shows up, the Spirit's like, just take a deep breath, Mark. Verse 3 is coming. I got something else I got to say. In other words, darkness never has the final say. I know darkness hurts. I know it feels terrible. But darkness, when you're with God, darkness never has the final word. The Spirit of God has the final word. So it's going to require all of us to take a little time to go, I need to be spending time with Him. I need to know what you say about my children. What do you say about my marriage? What do you say about this hell? I just need to hear what you say because when I do, I can step into my future. Because it's the Spirit of God that will pull you to your future. I'll tell you this about your emotions. Your emotions will never let you go to verse 3. You will write books about verse 2. You'll sit here and and fast and weep and cry and post on social media about verse 2. But when you walk in the Spirit, he's like, honey, put down Facebook. I got something I'm about to do through you. And then he takes me into verse 3. Come on, somebody. Then God. You see, darkness never has the final word. But if you're not careful, darkness will scream so loud, you'll never have a then God. You'll always have a why me. Well, if you have a why me, pop your mouth and go, then God. And then God showed up and said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness night. The evening passed and the morning came, Mark, of the first day. This is going to blow your mind. God never asked your opinion. He remedied the problem without your opinion. All he needed was his will and his spirit. And if a human can tap into his will and his spirit, your life will be incredibly transformed. So God looks and says, yeah, it may be a terrible time, but I'm going to create light and call it good. I wrote this down, and this is step one maybe. The marker for your life, the true north, the thing that will bring you stability, that which defines you in your future is that God is good. The thing that God did for us... Now, when I say God is good, I don't want you to think about the things that He does. He's just good. His character is good. Now, I don't have time to teach the book of Genesis, but if you go through every day that God does His creative work, He defines and marks every day with, that's good. And that's pretty cool when you can do something at the end of the day, go, that's pretty good. And then He gets to us and He goes, that's real good. So what it teaches me about darkness is if I'm not careful, the darkness will cause me to miss His goodness. Now, I'm not talking about His goodness by the stuff He does. I'm talking about the goodness that it's just who He is. Now, if God is good, not does He do good things, if He just is good, that means no evil can come from Him. That means nothing in your life that He's involved with will disappoint you. That means when you say yes to Him, no matter how hellacious that may seem, the moment He's done with you, holy smoke, my life is good. I thought when he asked Mary this, it was going to destroy her life. And God's like, yeah, the reason you thought that, Mark, is you thought that it would destroy her life because you're looking at it from her goodness and Joseph's goodness. But when I step in and I'm good, nothing about what I'm going to ask of her is going to destroy her life. It's going to save everyone's life. Because his goodness is not to destroy the dreams of a 15-year-old, it's to give all of you hope. 
So Mary had to know something. I think she did. I think she knew something that I wish every teenager today knew because if every teenager knew it, this place would be filled with people 30 and under. Here it is. The story goes, Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. Highlight that, spit on it, put your, put your take on it. He starts out, before we ever give you a chance to pout, I'm going to go ahead and call you what you are, your favored, Leslie. Now when the heavenly realm calls you favor, you better put your Iron Man suit on. You better get your Superman cape out and get ready. Because when the heavenly realm calls you favored, there's nothing the devil could ever do to stop it. There's nothing no demon of hell can stop it. There's nothing no culture can stop it. Honey, when I tell you you're favored, don't worry about somebody killing you. I will protect you. Don't worry about your, your husband to be leaving you. I'm going to deal with him too. The moment I stepped in and said, favor, I'm in charge of this thing. Worry about nothing. I've thought about you, I've thought about your family, I've thought about your future, I've thought about your home, I've thought about your other children, and I've thought about your husband. And if you'll just take a deep breath, I've thought about everything because that is my favor. And anytime you think God is messing you up, you've missed the fact that he's, He has favor on you. Well, what if we move to Atlanta? And it's our kids last year... Sophia's going to move up here and hate it. She's got to leave her senior year. I got to drag Victoria Kate out of cheerleading. Oh my God, we got to leave everybody we've known for 17 years and their friends and their teachers and move to that God awful thing called Atlanta. We're going to miss the cows and the four wheelers and the rednecks. Uh, but when you move in the favor of God, Every one of my kids today say, Dad, thank you and Mom for leaving. It's the best thing we ever did. Yeah, honey, because the favor of the Lord was with us. He says, the Lord is with you. Now, the moment he says the Lord is with you, let's prophetically run through it. The Lord is with you. What does that mean? What did we determine about God? He's good. What does this mean? If he's with me, what's going to happen to my life? Good. Always good. Now, there's this little phrase, God is good. And then everybody else goes, and all the time, God is good. I know we can say it, but do you genuinely believe it? Do you genuinely believe if you're his son or daughter, you just need to back up, honey, because verse 3 is right down the road, and I'm going to make it to that place to where his glory fills my life. Do you want to get there? It goes on to say this. Mary responded, well, I'm God's servant. May everything you say come true. Maybe the reason she could say, I just want everything you to say to come to is because she understood. Look back at the verse, the very end, verse 30. Don't be afraid. You found favor. Close your eyes. Do you live this way? Do you feel like your knuckles are constantly white because you're so fearful of life, your children, your... How do you feel right now with what God wants? What are you holding on to trying to make something of yourself? What are you afraid to let go of? If I could leave you with one thought today about Him being a Redeemer, 
one of the highest qualities is to understand He is good. And if you can ever land your plane there, you will constantly keep moving forward toward His glory. And I'll tell you that there will be times the darkness will sound louder than His goodness. You have to settle it in your soul. He is good. And instead of bemoaning the hell you're in right now, and we are gifted at that, could you simply just say, in the middle of darkness, I want to know His Spirit so that I can move through it to a place of His glory so that my life will testify of His goodness. Do you believe that today? Because many Christians do not believe that God is trying to do good to them. I often hear, well, I just feel like He may be teaching me something. We often praise the devil more than we do our Father. Well, the devil's just, let me tell you how bad it's been. Let me tell you what's been going on. Let me tell you what I've been fighting. Let me tell you what I've been struggling with. Oh, let me just put out on Facebook and just tell you how much prayer I need. You don't know how hard it's been. This season of my life is just, I understand that. We're human. But what would happen if we all just started saying, honey, you just need to back up a little bit because I'm about to just be an explosion of good. God has my family, my children, my grandchildren, my marriage because He is good. And if His nature is good, why wouldn't the fruit of following Him be good? Open your eyes and look at the TV, if you will. This is the baby who is now an adult. This is the first thing Jesus ever teaches. He shows up into the land of darkness and says in Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. For He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the captives will be released. The blind will see. And the oppressed will be set free. And the time of His favor has come. I don't know who that's for today. But do you understand... Favor doesn't come because you have such great faith. Favor doesn't come because you're so important or your life is so terrible. Favor comes because Jesus purchased the favor for you. Favor is yours now. You say, well, I'm going to really try. You don't, you don't try, you just believe. Do you understand the reason the darkness is so powerful is the darkness doesn't want you to live in a time of His favor. And you say, why? They say, because you cannot glorify the Son of God, so I need to make the darkness so dark that you never glorify Him. You never feel like favor is yours. You always feel bad luck is yours, and woe and pity is yours, and sickness is yours, and all this stuff. Nothing ever goes my way. It never goes my way. And the reason is, it's not that it's trying to glorify you, it's trying to rob the glory from Him. But Jesus said, the time of favor has come. Stand with me if you will. And again, if you don't mind, to just bow your head while I pray for you.
Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that You open our heart and mind to this truth. The prayers we pray for our marriages and our future and our business and our money and our retirement and our kids and our grandkids and the things we struggle with, wrestle with, the things that can become so dark we question you. We question where you are. We question why me. We, but I pray God that the baby that we celebrate in this season, the Son of God in the flesh, even the angels shouted glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I pray, Father, that we rest in your goodness instead of our trouble. I pray that in the middle of darkness we become intimate with your goodness rather than our trouble. Now for those of you in the middle of it right now, I don't know when it ends but I guess it's how a guy could be in prison and say, I've learned to be content. Because maybe he knew the goodness of God even in the midst of a troubled time. And that God is always working for me when I live His purposes. So Father, in this season of celebrating the birth of Jesus, I pray that every day we wake up, we wake up with something good's going to happen today. I just feel like something good's about to happen. And God, that we change our perspective on life. Not that life is so hard and this culture we live in is so dark, but the Spirit of God is leading me to the glory of God. And I will not throw in the towel and I will not give up, but I'll stand strong. I'll press through. How do I do that? Here's the question again. How do you make it through hard times when it seems no fruit? In your present darkness, focus on the certainty that your future will be the fruit of His favor. So Father, as we come this morning for communion, to seal the, the word that we've heard by taking part in your death and your resurrection, I pray that when we walk out the door, that the Spirit of God capture us in this communion and we never again allow the darkness to rob us of your character and who you are. 